0: Good morning, everyone. Okay, fantastic. Wonderful to be with you today. And my joy to bring God's word to you this morning. We are back in the gospel of Mark. You can turn in your Bibles to chapter one, please. Last week, we looked at verses 16 through 20 and Jesus' call to follow me. We saw that Jesus' calling, we saw Jesus' calling of the first four disciples with a capital D, who we said would later be called by him to become apostles. And we saw that even though the disciples, these disciples with a capital D, played a unique role in salvation history and the beginning of the church, That we are also called to be disciples of Jesus. We're called to learn from him and to follow him. And his call for us to follow him is a total and absolute call. It's a call to leave anything and everything behind that might hinder us from following him. It's a call to make him our top priority and to live all of life for him and following jesus does not just involve obeying him but also imitating him seeking to grow in our knowledge of him so that we can follow his example and become like him that's what we are called to that's the goal of our christian growth christ-like character christ-like living And we saw also that an integral part of following Jesus is becoming a fisher of men, becoming someone who seeks the salvation of the lost by being intentional to make the gospel, the good news of Jesus known so that sinners can respond in faith and repentance, have their sins forgiven and be saved. We all need to be intentional about this. We all need to seek to be better equipped for this work and to grow in our skill, intentionality, and faithfulness in this area. Today we continue on with the next few verses, Mark 1, verses 21 to 34. And what we're going to do in this section of scriptures, we're going to begin looking at Jesus' authority. This is a theme Mark emphasizes at a number of points in his gospel, and we'll see more of this as we continue along in Mark. But today, in these verses, we'll specifically look at three spheres of Jesus' authority. We will see Jesus' teaching with authority, Jesus' authority over demons and Jesus' authority over sickness. Since we're looking at a lengthy portion of Scripture today, I'll read it in sections as we move along rather than all at once. Let's begin reading from verse 21. And they, that is Jesus, along with the four men he's just called to follow him, Simon, Andrew, James, and John... They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Here we see Jesus' teaching with authority. Jesus and his disciples went to a synagogue on the Sabbath, And the Sabbath, for those of you who who are not familiar with the term, uh, was the seventh day of the week, which God called his people to set apart as a holy day every week for rest and for worship. And this was because when God created the world, he completed the entire work of creation within six days and then rested and enjoyed what he had created on the seventh day. And he called his people to remember that as well with this pattern of rest and worship on the seventh day. So on the Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples go to worship at the local synagogue. And the most important site of Israel's worship was the tabernacle. I'm sorry, not the tabernacle, the temple in Jerusalem. And devoted Jews from far and wide would make regular trips to the temple for the big religious feasts every year, like Passover. But week in and week out, Jewish people would gather to worship at their local synagogue. A key part of this worship time was teaching from the Old Testament. And it was a common practice for visiting teachers to be asked to teach So in comes Jesus, along with his four disciples. He's just called, and he is asked to teach. And Mark tells us that Jesus' teaching conveyed authority, that the teaching of the scribes, that is the teachers of Old Testament law, the supposed experts on the Old Testament, it conveyed authority that their teaching just did not. And he doesn't elaborate about what it was about Jesus' teaching that made it stand stand out as having a, a level, a degree of authority that the teaching of the scribes didn't have. But given the synagogue context, both Jesus and the scribes would have been teaching from the Old Testament. And yet, even though Jesus is teaching from already revealed scripture from the Old Testament, we see in verse 28 that Jesus' teaching is described as new. Even if he was teaching passages that the people knew and had perhaps even heard uh, sermons on before, he had a mastery of the meaning of the text that they'd never heard before. And he had an accompanying confidence that he knew definitively what the text meant and how it should be applied in life. Some scholars suggest that part of the difference that they would have seen here between the scribes and Jesus' teaching is based on the fact that scribes would would have regularly been quoting in quite an academic way from other scholars when they taught in an effort to support their positions. Whereas Jesus had no need to do this. He knew definitively what the text meant. And he could simply put forward what the text meant with full confidence. And with full confidence of how it should change the lives of those who heard it. This was no lecture it was the very words of God spoken directly to the heart. At a depth no one else has ever fully comprehended, Jesus understood that Scripture truly is the Word of the Living God. And to an extent that no one else ever fully has, he knew, he knew just how valuable and weighty and powerful and authoritative it is. And as he taught, no one could miss it. This was God's word. And the hearers knew they must respond to it with humility and wholehearted obedience. We've talked in our previous sermons about how the prophecies and promises of the Messiah anticipated a king who would come to rescue and reign and how they also anticipated a priest who would be the mediator between God and man, who would reconcile and, and and sort out the issue of our sin between God and man. But these messianic prophecies also anticipated a prophet, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate spokesman for God. In the Gospel of John, He refers to Jesus as the Word of God. The Word of God. The one who reveals God and makes Him known like never before. Here is the promised prophet. Here is the Word of God preaching the Word of God. And no one could miss the weight of authority. Mark says the people were astonished at his teaching. The idea is certainly one of awe and amazement, but also alarm. It was unsettling. As one scholar put it, Jesus' teaching presented with a sovereign authority that permitted neither debate nor theoretical reflection, confronted the congregation With the absolute claim of God upon their whole person. And to some that is thrilling, but to others it's unsettling, it's uncomfortable. Some embrace it, others rebel against it. Read with me now from verse 23. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. They all were amazed. So they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Here we see Jesus's authority over demons. The Bible, friends, is very, very clear that Satan and demons are real. And here in the synagogue, we see a demon who is inside a man influencing him. And this is sometimes called, sometimes we'll refer to this as demon possession, and some of your Bible translations may even use that terminology. We need to remember, though, that the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And this is one of those cases where, uh, that, where a particular translation can be a little bit misleading. See, the original Greek language is not as strong as possession, it speaks of someone having a demon but not of a demon owning or completely controlling someone as if that person has no ability whatsoever to make their own decisions. That would be too strong a view of what it it means to have a demon. It's more accurate to think of a demon harassing someone, strongly influencing them, rather than a demon being in complete and total control of someone. Now that said, we still see in the Gospels and in Acts that demonic influence can be very, very strong. Leading people to act in ways they wouldn't if they were thinking clearly and normally. And often leading them to do things that hurt and harm themselves or that bring them shame. As Jesus is teaching here, a man in the synagogue who has a demon inside him speaks out. Now, however this demon was influencing this man and affecting him, it seems to have been subtle enough, at least at the moment when he was there in public in the synagogue, that the man could be in the synagogue without others around him realizing that he had a demon. Seems to have just been someone who was sitting in the congregation until he was disturbed by Jesus' authoritative teaching. It's like a wicked man who's found his way somehow, some way into a castle while the king is away. And he begins acting as if he owns the place. He invites all his friends over and they've been doing whatever they like, making themselves very, very much at home. And this continues on day after day until one day this wicked man gallivanting around the castle doing his thing finds himself face to face with the king, the rightful owner of the castle. And suddenly he knows that he and his friends are in big trouble. Remember what we saw was Jesus' primary message during this early stage of his ministry. We saw this in chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus is proclaiming, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, The kingdom is here because I'm here, because the king is here. And so the demon responds to Jesus' teaching. He cries out through the man he's inside. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? My judgment is coming. My punishment is coming. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, the belief at this time and common practice amongst exorcists, amongst people who would try and drive demons out of people, was to try and gain some sort of power over spiritual beings by identifying them by name. And it seems that this is what this demon is trying to do to defend itself against Jesus, against his far greater power and authority. He gives his human name, right, Jesus of Nazareth, and then identifies his deeper, more profound identity as well, the Holy One of God. This demon is like a dog backed into a corner Facing a far bigger and stronger opponent. It's cowering, its tail is between its legs, but it's still baring its teeth and growling as if to say, I know I can't win this, but I'm still going to try and keep you at a distance. Don't come any closer. But Jesus wastes no time in ending this. Be silent. Come out of him. He doesn't have to name the demon. He doesn't have to use any special words. He doesn't need to do any rituals. He doesn't need the help of a Sangoma. He doesn't need the help of his ancestors. He doesn't need a charm. He doesn't need any Muti. He doesn't even need to engage in some sort of battle or fight. He doesn't break a sweat. He just commands the demon and it obeys verse 26 and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him finished finished and here then friends is proof of the authority of this teacher It's not just that his teaching is so new and powerful and dynamic that it gives a sense of uh, divine authority. It's not just that. It's that he speaks and things happen. He commands even the demons and they obey. Now, this whole question of demonic activity and how Christians should think about demons and in spiritual warfare is is a very big and complex discussion. But for now, I just want you to make, I just want to make this very, very clear. All we need is Jesus. All we need is Jesus. We don't need help from any other supernatural beings or any other supernatural means. We just need Jesus. Calling on ancestors for help or going to Sangoma for help is kind of like me having a robber on my property. And imagine I've got the best armed response company in the country and they're all there with big guns and with an armored car and it's just over the top really, you know. Um... This is like I've got a small army there on my property. And I'm thinking, okay, but but wait. Let me get my, my son. Go, grab your water gun, your water pistol, your spray gun. We need some more help here, right? It doesn't add anything. And it's offensive, honestly, to the armed response guys to think that they would need that sort of help all we need is Jesus he has more than enough authority more than enough power to command the demons look with me now at verse 29 and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. Here we see Jesus' authority over sickness. We don't know what sickness Peter's mother-in-law had but she had a, serious, a fever serious enough to have her laying flat on her back in bed and the text tells us Jesus came took her by the hand, lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. as simple as that as simple as that fever gone full strength restored so that she's able to immediately get right back to her feet and get busy serving a meal for her guests. Our friends, it would be a wrong interpretation of this passage to take from this that Christians should always anticipate healing, that we should expect healing from God whenever we ask for it. The Bible makes clear that it's not always God's will to heal quickly. It's not even always God's will to heal. But he always has good reasons for what he does. You and I, we often just want trials like sickness to just go away. But God uses trials and difficulties God uses things like sickness to grow us in Christ's character, to grow our relationship with him and to bring glory to himself. God is not our genie and a lamp. He's not our vending machine. We can't just command him to do what we want when we want it. He is God. The same God who has authority and power over all sickness certainly has the authority to decide if and when he will heal. And he has the authority and power to work all things together for good. Even sickness. We can trust him. And just as we said with demonic activity and spiritual warfare... We see here that we do not need special rituals or charms or any help from other supernatural beings when we or our loved ones are sick. The way God's created this world, He's given us medicine, He's given us doctors, He's given us healthy eating and exercise and things like this. Things that are part of the natural world and how He made things to help us be healthy. That's all part of how he created the world to work. But we do not need any supernatural help other than from Jesus. He is the great physician and he is more than capable of healing. Now, everything we've looked at in the sermon takes place in one jam-packed day. Jesus and his disciples go to a synagogue where Jesus teaches, and everyone's amazed at his at the authority with which he teaches. And then he encounters this man with a demon and commands it to leave the man uh, it's inside. Then, after this uh, this uh, synagogue service, he and his disciples go to lunch at Simon Peter's home, and that's where Jesus heals his mother-in-law and now at the end of this day we read in mark 1 verse 32 that evening at sunset they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons and the whole city was gathered together at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and he cast out many demons, and he would not the demons would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. So these are not just once off occurrences. Mark tells us that on this one day Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. We said in a previous sermon that the gospel of Mark would show us who Jesus is by showing us who others testify to who he is and also by showing us proof of who he is. And though they do not intend to bring God any glory, here we see the demons adding their testimony. Who is Jesus? They know who he is, the Holy One of God. And they know that they can't engage with him. They know his authority and power far uh, is far, far greater than theirs. And we see through Jesus's actions, that he teaches with a unique one of a kind authority That he has authority over supernatural beings. And that he has authority over all kinds of sickness. Friends, this is no ordinary man. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. And the implication for us is that we must follow him. We must follow Him. We must give Him our full devotion, our full allegiance. And further, we must give Him our full dependence and trust. If He has this much power and authority, and He does, then we need not look to any other supernatural help. Jesus is enough. Jesus is all we need. Amen.